Uh, thank you, Professor. Uh, he's, he and I are Ken and James, but Professor, we have so many beautiful, wonderful doctors and professors here today. I'm thrilled, and I'm thrilled you were all able to come early. Uh, this has been a dream of mine for about eight years that I could actually have an hour to talk instead of just 45 minutes <laughs> because I don't believe I have ever finished all of the excerpts that I, I had make a list of about 89 of them here. I usually get about 40, so I might get, a I might get into the third act maybe today, but get a little further, which, will, um, which, um, which is a, a pleasure. Um, uh, thank you to uh, Professor Smith for a very interesting, uh, very interesting talk, um, uh, s some of which uh, I noted down not that I needed any more material, I have too much already. Uh, but um, I'd like, first of all, welcome you. This is the first opera of the season, and um, I'm particularly happy to see such a great big crowd today. Uh, Macbeth is an opera that has not been produced by Los Angeles Opera for 28 years. This is an astonishing fact to me. Uh, because it's very special, opera, and I will digress only briefly to talk about myself. Um, which is my birthright as an artist, I think. Uh, this happens to be, for no reason that I could ever figure out, the opera of which I have done more productions than any other opera. You tell me how that happened. Eight, this is my eighth production um, of Macbeth. And the first one, um, it started way, way, way back when I was barely out of the Juilliard School. It was the second opera um, we used to call them gigs at the time. That means I was paid for it. It was the second opera I ever conducted um, and was uh, remunerated. Uh, the first one was Falstaff, and I find that significant because Verdi's Shakespeare was right up there at the top, and only uh, three years later I conducted Otello for the first time. So these three operas have been with me all of my life. Um, uh, the, uh, it's not the opera I have, uh, Verdi opera I have conducted the most performances, however. Um, f a few days ago, it was trailing behind um, Falstaff and Otello, tied with Don Carlo, which is not by Shakespeare. By the end of this run, it will be the Verdi opera I've conducted the most. Um, somebody asked me the other day, well, you know, I, I, that was my 50th performance. I said, you know, don't you get tired of it? And it's a resounding no. The miracle of classical music is that it gets better every time you hear it and every time you do it. And I, I am um, incredibly excited to be doing it here in our own, uh, in our own theater for the first time in many years. Um, and with, of course, with Placido Domingo, uh, who is singing, singing Macbeth, which he adds to his Shakespearean credits at this time. But after that first production uh, back in Washington, D.C., I did one in Philadelphia. I, it was my first opera in Europe, the first opera engagement. In other words, the first time I was paid in Europe to conduct an opera. And the man who invited me to conduct that opera was named Peter Hemmings. It was the Scottish opera, and it just be, turns out that Peter Hemmings, of course, was the, first, the great general director of L.A. Opera years ago. So my connections to the Hemmings family, which continues on here with Rupert Hemmings on our staff and his little daughter, you will see her in the middle of the stage in Act 4, so don't, uh, don't miss her. That's Peter Hemmings' granddaughter right in the front of the stage um, as, as a refugee. I, I went on to do it in Cologne. I went on to do it in Paris. I went on to do it in St. Petersburg. But most important for me, I have done it... Uh, uh, not once, but twice in Florence, the city where it was created. Uh, one of those productions in 1996 was, of course, the, 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 the traditional version, which you are hearing today, which is uh, actually the revised version of the opera. But three years ago, uh, in, uh, on the uh, occasion of the bicentennial, bicentennial uh, celebration of Verdi's birth, uh, 2013, I did another production in Florence, this time of the original 1847 version, and this time in the theater, which is ca called uh, the Pergola, in the theater where it was premiered, which still stands to this day, and so I had the honor of conducting Macbeth in the original version, um, in the same pit where Giuseppe Verdi conducted it in 1847. They even have a little stool there. I, I was there. He sat on. I wasn't able to. It wasn't allowed to sit on it, but I was allowed to. Was allowed to pet it. So, I did. <laughs> um, so personally, it's an important opera for me and to me. But much more important is that it is a very, very important opera um, in the great life of Giuseppe Verdi. And uh, if you have nothing better to do in the coming days, you'll find my article in your program, Why is Macbeth, why is Macbeth important? And uh, you can find the long version on, 
on, uh, online. Of course, we have to shorten it to fit into the program, but on the line you can get the full version and you can get an additional personal note from me. Now, um, I want to uh, first read a quote from Giuseppe Verdi. Be guided by this. There are three roles in this opera and three roles only. Lady Macbeth, Macbeth, and the chorus of witches. Here's a first, here's a first revolutionary step. Verdi was to turn Italian opera away from these, uh, uh, the conventions of bel canto, which talked about a lot because we do a bel canto opera almost every year, and turning away from this and turning Italian opera into music drama. He's doing the same thing as his um, contemporary, who was also born in 1813, Richard Wagner, who of course was to turn German opera and turn the world on its head through his creation of basically uh, a new art form, which he called music drama. Verdi continued to call his operas operas. We continue to call them operas. But what he did accomplish in the course of his life was to, uh, to move the needle away from vocal display onto into dramatic verity, dramatic truth. And one of the, um, the great inspirations to Verdi was, of course, William Shakespeare. Uh, whom he said he always had uh, Shakespeare's works by his side from the time he was a young man. He read them and reread them. You do know, of course, that he wrote three operas to Shakespeare, plays the second two, Otello and Falstaff, at the end of his life, which are considered, I think, by uh, most uh, people who know them, to be the two great masterpieces, not just of Giuseppe Verdi, but probably of the Italian opera, and not just Italian opera, but two of the greatest works in uh, the canon of Western classical music. Uh, Macbeth is very different, because Macbeth is an early work. It is, it's his 10th opera. He was 33 when he wrote it. Uh, it was produced for the first time in Florence, as I mentioned, in the Teatro della Pergola in, on March 14, 1847. This, um, precedes the Italian premiere of Shakespeare's Macbeth on the stage by two years. Milano, 1849, was the first performance of Macbeth by Shakespeare in Italy, which means that Giuseppe Verdi preceded, in his writing and presenting Macbeth, um, the opera, preceded even the first performance of Macbeth uh, in, in Italy. Now, 18 years later, he was to revise the opera for Paris. Now, he often did this. Paris would make him offers. He only, in the end, wrote two operas for Paris, but he revised quite a number of his operas. And so, taking advantage of that, he, um, he made uh, some pretty significant changes. Um, and in those changes, he upgraded Lady Macbeth even a step further. You just heard Professor Smith tell you about the relationship of how many lines of Macbeth in Shakespeare to how many of Lady Macbeth, and you see that Macbeth was well over a two to one in that relationship. Well, Verdi, when he wrote this opera, already was moving Lady Macbeth up, and she was certainly an equal. But she didn't appear in Act Three. And Verdi felt that that was a weakness in his opera. And so he changed the end of Act Three, which was a scene exclusively for Macbeth and the witches, into one that included Lady Macbeth. So he is even further bringing that, uh, he's changing the balance of those works. Um, so that's 1865 now, that's 18 years later. Um, now, opera, uh, as I have told you how many times now, is not literature. So I hear a lot of people say, yes, 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 but it's not Shakespeare, and where's, uh, where's Mrs. Macduff, and where's the porter, and what happened to this, and what happened to that? Um, we went through this with um, Moby Dick. I defy even Richard Wagner to really write the entire uh, piece of literature of Moby Dick. I mean, it would take five weeks to perform such an opera. So all opera is a condensation of a play, when it is taken from a play or a drama, it is a condensation. And how does that condensation work and why is there a condensation? The first reason is that it, it, it takes much longer to sing a, a line or a phrase than it does to speak it. So that the volume of lines has to be reduced because otherwise it will take too long. But that's only a first reason. It also has to be condensed because not everything translates into music. 
music speaks immediately and it usually speaks to our emotions first and our intellect, intellect second. Now that's exactly the opposite of what literature does. Literature, we, we, we perceive it, we perceive the word, we have associations with those words and if it's meant to be a, uh, if it's a novel or uh, a drama, those words will create emotions for us. Uh, but music is the opposite. We hear music and we struggle sometimes unsuccessfully to actually say what it means or what it makes us feel because music is a is an art form that is always said it starts where words stop so um, this is a necessity uh, for any play uh, so what does the composer have to do the composer has to strip it down to the storyline um, I noticed someone made a, um, an observation recently that Verdi's Macbeth is the Reader's Digest version of Shakespeare's Digest. Uh, true and false. Uh, true in the sense that, yes, it's shorter. False in the sense, does it, does it um, represent to any degree the spirit of Shakespeare? I will say yes, but I will also say it doesn't need to. And why it doesn't need to is because, in fact, opera composers from the very beginning took subjects from wherever they found them and wherever they felt like it. They, and that was many times, uh, they were, there was a, a libretto industry. There were librettists. Verdi never wrote his own librettos. Nobody did in Italy. The man who started all of that, of course, was Richard Wagner. But the, uh, the, there was an industry that created stories, very thin plots, that did what? That gave the singers an opportunity to show what they could do. And we've talked about this many times. The bel canto scene, where you have a introduction, a slow song aria, it's called, a bridge passage where somebody runs in and gives a piece of news that changes the emotion for the singer so that they can then sing a fast, brilliant, um, uh, aria to show off their speed, to show off their high notes, whereas in the slow part they showed off their beautiful ability to sing phrases and to show off the basic beauty of their voice. Well, operas were constructed like a sort of a necklace. You'd, you'd get, well, the baritone needs a scene, the soprano needs a scene, the tenor needs a scene, the tenor and the soprano, who are in love, have to be, have a scene like that. And so it was constructed without, very often, without any regard to dramatic coherence. Now, from the beginning of his life, uh, Verdi uh, did not accept this. But it took him a while before he was able uh, and was successful enough to start um, chipping away at that. And he does so in a major way in Macbeth. Because this is the first opera where you can really say he started dogmatically from the point of view, I want to do this. I want to translate this Shakespeare play that I love so much into a coherent opera. And so he does, and I will go slowly through some, what are some of those changes and so that I call your attention to you. Because some people think it's an old-fashioned opera. And they say, yeah, well, you know, it sounds like an early opera. Well, yes, a lot of it is an early opera. But if we're to, if we're to uh, judge this opera, and I'm not a believer in judgment, on any level in, in music, but if, we, if you want to judge the opera and say, well, it's not as good as Aida, it's not as good as Don Carlo, it's not as good as Otello and Falstaff, just remember that you're judging them, the, the Macbeth, by the standards that were established by Giuseppe Verdi himself. So that you, he, you're, you're judging an early work as opposed to a, a later work. Um, I would say um, that for me, there is no uh, there's no difficulty here because the early works are still early works of a genius. And this genius is evident uh, throughout, uh, throughout the work. Um, so if you want to read more about that, just uh, if you need to go to sleep at night, just read my article and it'll put you right to sleep. Okay. Um, so the, uh, the, first, the first revolutionary or at least very significant act in uh, changing the nature of Italian opera is the choice of the work itself. To choose a Shakespeare work was almost new. Rossini had written Otello, but he had changed the story considerably. So this was, that was a very, that first step already, it represents something. Now he gets about destroying the stereotypes of 
the vocal categories. What do I mean like that? Now, we all know every opera has a soprano or more than one soprano. They often have a mezzo-soprano. That term was not even used in Verdi's time. It was a secondary soprano uh, who might have a lower voice. Uh, there's a tenor. There's a baritone. There's a bass. They had uh, characteristic functions. Um, I, here's the t moment to quote George Bernard Shaw. The Italian romantic opera is an opera about a soprano and a tenor who wish to make love to each other and a baritone who doesn't want them to. <laughs> now, if you think about that, it really fits. And you can go right up practically to the end of Giuseppe Verdi's life, and you will still feel it, find it to be true, and you will find it to be true in Puccini and the Verismo composers as well. It just something that seemed to sit in the nature of opera. But Verdi makes a decision that seems easy for us, but in fact, it's radical. There is not going to be a leading tenor. There is not going to be a love story. There is no love story to be found in Macbeth. It is a loveless opera. The very most you can say is maybe there is some sensuality in some of Lady Macbeth, but most of that sensuality is not, is not inspired by love or devotion to her husband or the idea of love. It's power. It's the throne. And she practically, you can practically see that happening on the stage. So that's a revolutionary right there to say there's not going to be an important tenor. There are two tenors. They're less important. There's a baritone and a soprano who are not in love, but they are both partners, um, as we know, partners in ambition and partners in crime. Then to say the third protagonist is the, is the chorus, is the woman's chorus, the women's chorus of, of witches. Now, you know, Verdi, there are three. Now it is 43 or so choristers, witches, and this has created a challenge to every stage director from the beginning of this opera's history, because how do you, how do you manage that? How do you make that credible? Now, I'm not going to tell you Darko Tresnax, uh, uh, who, has, who is a noted Shakespearean, and this, he has done two Macbeths already of Shakespeare. This is his first Verdi Macbeth. He's found a solution that inquires the chorus and a troupe of dancers, some nine women witches, that's three times three, um, and you'll see, and you'll see if it, it is convincing to you. Um, now, the chorus has had a function in Verdi operas usually as a, something to support the main love story, but sometimes it, raise, it rises to political levels, and the first and most famous one of those is Nabucco, his third opera, where the um, famous chorus, Va Pensiero, which was the, um, the Hebrews uh, in exile, became a symbol in Italian life for the Italians who still at the time were not a country. They were under the domination of, well, many places, Austria, France, uh, the Pope, uh, Spain, history, history of domination that resonated so strongly. Um, in, uh, in the, uh, at the time of its writing, the 1840s, that Verdi himself became a symbol of what are called the Risorgimento operas. These are the, this is the unification, the, re the rebirth of Italy. It's going to become rising again, and it's going to be uh, not, uh, not accomplished until 1861, so that's 14 years um, after Macbeth, and it wasn't to be completed until um, 1871. And there are some people that said it still hasn't happened. That's another issue. Um, so no love interest. Um, the political operas of Verdi. Verdi was a person who was interested in political life. So you will see here a, a work that already is going to reflect that interest. So it's not, it is loveless, but it is not without politics. Now, the uh, reshaping of the scenes as he needed them. We've talked many times about the concertato, which takes place at the end of the first half of the opera. This is a moment of music. Everything stands still. There's a stalemate in the drama. It can't go forward. It can't go backward. And the composer's job was to get just about everybody in the cast on the stage, get the chorus on the stage, and have them all sing and make music and make a big climax for you before you run out and have your intermission. And then it would start from scratch in the second half of the opera. This was almost 
this was almost required. It was such a requirement that uh, you may remember last year, Norma, we did this. There is a trio at the end of Act One, and um, Bellini was criticized because there was no, not going to be a chorus at the end, so he had them sing off stage about for uh, a half of a minute in order to fulfill his obligation to have the chorus participate. That's how important the concertata was, but it was always the end of the, of the first half of the opera. So in a four-act opera, like Macbeth, you've got two acts, you should have your concertato at, in act two. And you have it. But you also have something similar to it at the end of act one. And that is a big step. It doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but Verdi, this was right after the murder of King Duncan. Verdi said, we have to have, we must have uh, a, uh, this moment for everyone's got to be there. And so he just simply did that. Um, now, the coloratura, that's when usually sopranos sing very fast and show off. Um, it's done usually to show off how beautiful your voice is. But he didn't want Lady Macbeth to have a beautiful voice. Um, and I'm going to quote to you a famous letter while trying to cast it. Um, somebody proposed to him uh, a soprano by the name of uh, Eugenia Tadolini. She was a famous artist and he admired her. But he said, um, no, her qualities are too great for this role. She is a fine figure of a woman and I would like Lady Macbeth to look ugly and malignant. She sings to perfection, and I would rather that the lady didn't sing at all. She has a marvelous voice, clear, limpid, and strong, and I would rather a voice which is rough, hollow, and stifled. Her voice has something angelic in it. Ladies should have something devilish. There are two chief pieces in this opera, the duet between Lady Macbeth and her husband, which is right after the, well, well, which is uh, at the time of Duncan's murder, and the sleepwalking scene. And these pieces must not be sung at all. They must be acted and declaimed in a voice that is hollow and veiled. What a letter. This is, uh, this letter has been quoted many times and misquoted and I think abused by many people to say, well, you don't have to sing well at all. Anybody can go up on the stage. And I've heard this argument given, don't sing beautiful, shout, scream, do everything else. Yes, that's appropriate for certain, mostly 20th century operas, but it is not appropriate for anything written in the 19th century. I think Verdi was using a certain amount of hyperbole in this letter to make a point. He wanted actors who sang. He did not want singers who did not act. And so he insisted, and there is one story, that he rehearsed the duet of the first act between the lady and Ms., uh, Mr. and Mrs. Macbeth 150 times. That is the, uh, that, the, the, uh, the first soprano, whose name was Barbieri, Nino Barbieri, uh, wrote that. She said he was so insistent, he was a maniac, he wanted it sung between their teeth. He said, close your mouth, sing between your teeth. He wanted the voice huffled. He wanted it stifled. This scene where there are two murderers who have just, who just committed a murder in the night, he didn't want them coming out and singing. He wanted them to act. So he starts a whole system where he, uh, in he indicates in the score to the singers, sing through your mouth. Sing with a kupa, voce kupa, which is closed, which is dark which is hollow. And then he sings, he will show them a voce spiegata, which means, uh, in rough translation, to uh, exclaim. In other words, to let the voice out full force. So he was defining this in a very, very special way in this opera. And that becomes, and I will show you with the, um, with the examples how that works. Uh, there's a lot of stress on spectacle and the supernatural, naturally, because there are witches. Um, uh, he's uh, up, as I mentioned, he's upgraded the Macbeth and the witches. Um, and the characters are reduced from 37 characters and to nine singing roles, only which there are, three, there are two main. Macduff is the tenor, and the only real function he's given is to cry and weep for his murdered wife and children, which, of course, um, is, a, uh, is a theme that goes through all Verdi, the plight of the tragic father, he himself being a tragic father, having lost his first wife and two young children, uh, very, very young, long before he wrote Macbeth. So that is, Mac Macduff could have various uh, functions, political, but he chooses only one that of paternity and that of the, the tragic father. Uh, Malcolm, the now only one son of King Duncan, um, basically has a little more than a walk-on part. Uh, there is a base, it's Banquo, of course, but Banquo, as you know, is murdered in Act Two, so he doesn't have a lot to sing. None of those characters are given a full Shena, that is to say, an Andante, a middle section, and a Cabaletta. None of them. Only Lady Macbeth, 
will have a full Shana to herself in the first act. And even Macbeth is, uh, is deprived of this. His first appearance becomes a duet with chorus, choral accompaniment. He has an andante at, in act four, but the cabaletta is so shortened, it is shared with the entire chorus who come running in and they say, um, Burnham's Wood is, uh, is approaching us. So when we get to that duet, I'll be able to show you um, how that works. Now, um, I'm going to start with my excerpts, and let's see if we actually get to Act Three this time. We've got four acts to do. Um, a, um, a reminder uh, of, of a quote that I like to, to, to mention in this context, it's Victor Hugo, who, of course, Verdi wrote two operas by Victor Hugo, Hernani, which you haven't seen in too long, and Rigoletto, which you see but never often enough. Victor Hugo, music expresses that which cannot be put into words and on which it is impossible to remain silent. That's a great quote of Hugo. Um, and Verdi, of course, is doing that. He puts into words, he condenses into music um, using the word, but uh, in fact, uh, in fact, expressing so much with the music that um, it becomes a coherent entity of itself. Um, I've mentioned that there are the three main characters, Lady and Mrs. Macbeth and the Witches. Uh, it's been observed that this opera is a tragedy for Lady Macbeth and for Macbeth and for many of the other characters, if not just about everybody, but it is a comedy for the witches. That's important because you're going to see that Verdi characterizes their, or caricaturizes almost, their music um, in a way that to some seems very trivial. But if you are able to adopt that stance, that to them it's a game, these are people's lives and they play with people's lives um, the way the fates do in Greek mythology, um, it takes on a different uh, Hugh. So um, it has a short prelude. Uh, the overture is dying out. Verdi has lost interest in it after Rossini himself, the greatest overture writer of Italian opera, lost interest. And he gives you a prelude which is to give you the character of the opera that is about to follow. So here it is. It begins with this. That strange sounding thing um, is associated with the witches. Um, it also may be the bagpipe, um, or as Professor Smith mentioned, the shawm or the oboe. Uh, there is an oboe in there. This is strange. This must have sounded terribly, terribly strange in 1847 to everybody. And it's Verdi's way of trying to um, uh, evoke the exotic. What's so exotic about Scotland? Well, I assure you, very few people, including Giuseppe Verdi, had ever been to Scotland. So this is meaning right away, remove yourself from your, uh, from your, from your, your environment. We're going to a strange place. And so we hear this imitation of what Verdi imagined to be an instrument that he'd never heard. Okay, we're gonna find that again in the third act when the witches come back and listen to them in the violins. Some strange wispy sound. Yes, because Professor, uh, uh, Professor Smith mentioned that the witches come from under the stage, from under the earth, and they also float down from above. Uh, Verdi just expressed the part that comes from above. Here's the part that comes from below. Scared you, didn't it? There they are, the witches up there. So this is an opera that grabs you by the hair from the beginning, just as, as Macbeth says, never shake thy gory locks at me. It takes you by the hair, like that. You're in it. The witches, you've been just shown the witches. The low music, the one that sounds like a Mahler symphony practically, is the supernatural force of the witches who have the, the gift and the responsibility to, to prophesy, to tell the future. Now, the next figure comes in. Sorry. You have to listen like that. 
This is music you will hear from the, in the fourth act, that is the beginning of the sleepwalking scene, and you can almost see her tiptoeing and her doctor and her maid following her and trying that to keep her out of harm's way. So that is transformed, and now you get the full force of the, here it is. This slow, beautiful, Verdian, uh, melodic, simple melodic, but powerful in its emotion. This will show us the tragedy of Lady Macbeth, wicked Lady Macbeth, who by the fourth act has gone insane, presumably because her conscience has won the better of her. by witch-like music and developed. Now this very short prelude will put you in the mood and then we go right to the heath. And here it is. Wind, lightning, thunder. Three. Wind, lightning, thunder. Three times, of course. Wind, lightning, thunder. Witch's music sounds a little bit like gypsy music. And there's a reason for that. In Verdi's mind, the gypsies were very often the fortune tellers in Europe, as they still are in many cases. So uh, that, although there's no, uh, there's no historic connection between the gypsies and the witches of Macbeth, there is a, a psychological relationship in the mind of many Italian people and in Verdi. And so he plays on that. So here they are, and they start... You hear they sing in a nasal type of character. The three groups of witches. And here's, your, here's more gypsy music. And after the drum, a drum, a drum, Macbeth doth come, you hear the drum and they sing like this in great excitement because they have a job to do. Almost operetta, but the point, remember, it's a comedy for them. And now it's not a comedy. Macbeth comes on, so fair and foul a day, Banquo is with him. They said, oh, who are these, these hags to which they are referred? And the witches speak. Now they're dead serious. Why? Because their supernatural function has taken over and it is their job to prophesy. Salve o Macbeto, that's Hail Macbeth. Di Glamis Sire, Thane, Sire of Glamis. You can hear the strings tremolo. Something is. Second group, Salve o Macbeto. Di Caudor Sire, Thane of Caudor surprise. And here's the punch. Salve o Macbeto. Di Scotia Re, King of Scotland. Now that there's a, uh, those of you that didn't, don't study music, don't worry about this. If, if you happen to have, this is an E natural. This is a becoming itself, that one note is going to become a symbol. Uh, very rarely wrote key in different tonalities with any meaning. They were not, uh, there are composers that do, they, there, are, there are structures, there are relationships. He almost never did that but he did it in Macbeth. There are notes and keys that seem to be associated uh, uh, with various meanings. Um, e natural is one of the important ones that's going to be, I'll point it out every so often when it comes up, uh, it is important. And there it is told for the first time. Now, Banquo is going to get his Salve, hail. Salve, three times, Salve. Sounds like Salce in Otello. Min Sarai di Macbeth. A poor maggiore, you will be less than Macbeth and greater. Non quanto a lui, ma più di lui felice. Not as happy as he, but much happier. 
non re, ma di monarchi genitori, not king, but the father of kings. All hail Macbeth and Banquo. Over and out. Okay, the drama is set. They have spoken. Now, are they, are they actually in charge of this? Are they going to make everything happen? This is a great philosophical question, and I'm not going to answer it. But, because it's not clear. But one thing is clear. They seem to know being able to read, they know that Macbeth has latent ambition, and they play into this ambition by saying, you, you will be Caldor, which is a fact, and you will be king. And that, of course, gives birth now to that ambition, which was up until now um, hidden from himself. And immediately at the same time, they make these predictions for Banquo, he, they set up a competition between these two men right there. You tell one man you're going to be king, uh, and you tell the other one you're not going to be king, but your children are going to be king. Well, that's competition, and we all know how that's going to play out later in the story. Now, this provokes... The first reaction where the characters whisper, children will be kings and you will be king before them mysterious words and what happens is that uh, the King Duncan's troops come in and they say to Macbeth uh, you're now the new Thane of Cawdor he says what happened to Thane of Cawdor he's been killed okay so and that happens overnight Immediately, so there's no there's no time. I mean, Verdi makes everything concise, and the music is jolly and happy. Is it because it's part of the witch's joke, or because it's just the soldiers who are happy to come in and tell Macbeth that he's now uh, he's now been promoted? We don't know, but Macbeth and Banquo are now going to react in the manner of the new Verdi. Listen carefully. <laughs> Two predictions, they are whispering, whispering, whispering. Two predictions have now been fulfilled. They are promising me a throne. And then, a voce spiegata. Outbursts. Why do I feel, and back, my hair standing up? Second time, pensier di sangue. Thoughts of blood. Go back. From where have you come? And the voce says here, a voce spiegata. And this is the Verdi baritone we know from Rigoletto and Traviata. Even though fate offers me a throne, I will never raise my hand with an arm. Now, meanwhile, Banquo, the other side, whispering. See how he blows himself up with pride. In hoping for a throne. Macbeth repeats. And now, Banquo. But sometimes, often, the powers of hell speak seductive words to us. And then they abandon us throw us over the abyss. That's a paraphrase of Shakespeare. And now, a voce spiegata, full voice. And Banquo answers, voce cupa. So I think that gives you a first example of what you can, can be listening to for the rest. Now, it's time for Lady Macbeth, and here she is. This introduction. Hear how this music starts from below as if she and her spirit is coming out of hell. And once she is introduced, she comes in doing something else completely unorthodox. Instead of singing a so called cavatina, which is an introductory song to make you see, you, we hear how beautiful our soprano sings. What does she do? She speaks. She reads the letter. 
cose quando i nunzi del re mi salutarono sir di cauto the day of victory i was surprised to meet these what 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 Shakespeare called the weird sisters vaticinio uscito dalle veggenti stesse che predissero un certo al capo mio they greeted me as thane of condor the same lips pronounced me future king keep this to yourself addio farewell okay big deal she's speaking in the 20th century it's not a big deal the 21st century is not a big deal 1847 it was totally unorthodox you will hear several years later 1853 in la traviata you will hear violetta read the letter in the last act but this was comparatively a rarity and unheard of to start with somebody walking on the stage reading a letter and now she explodes you're an ambitious spirit macbeth but will you have the metal with which to follow this up Will you be wicked? I don't think I have to tell many of you who that is. That's Maria Callas, who I think most of us fairly fans would agree was the definitive Lady Macbeth in the 20th century. Um, uh, that recording that I've made, uh, brought out here for you, um, special artifact in my life. My older brother gave it to me for Christmas when I was 12 years old. Uh, not because we knew about Macbeth or even Maria Callas, but because um, I had a piano teacher at the time whose uncle, Nicola Ruscino, was the conductor on that record. So he said, hey, you would like this. Your, uh, your teacher's uncle is conducting on it. So I had that record. When I was 12 years old, that is where my passion for Macbeth, and also, by the way, Maria Callas, started through that accident of fate. Uh, I do recommend to you that you, get on, you go on iTunes or whatever you need to do, Amazon, download as much Maria Callas in there is a that recording easily available on iTunes there is a complete recording pirated recording with very bad sound but nevertheless it's Maria Callas from La Scala I think it's 1952 and Victor de Sabata one of the great 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 conductors uh, of his time conducting it so all worth hearing here comes the music from hell again The road to power is full of misdeeds. And it's bad for he who departs on it and is doubtful and turns back. And here she goes. If that's slightly strident, remember, that was fine with Giuseppe Verdi. And now, what is, what's amazing about that? Usually you get the high note, that's a high C, you get that at the end of labor, a scene, an introduction, a slope aria, a bridge passage, a cabaletta, maybe a cabaletta the second time. At the end, you get the high note to thrill you so that you can clap. Not for Macbeth. Right away, it's like a, like a demon out, you know, unleashed. Out she comes with it right away at the end. He turns everything on its head. And here is now the slow movement written in D-flat. D-flat is going to be an important key. Come, hasten. I want to heat up that cold heart, meaning Macbeth. It doesn't mean that she's, she's, she's lusting for him and she wants him home in her bed. No, heat up that heart means get his ambition going. So she's getting her slow music. Uh, it's not so much to show out what a beautiful voice she has, but it is to show, it is showing her character. Then there's a bridge passage. The messenger comes in and says, Macbeth's coming home, great. And the king is coming with him, King Duncan, great. And she unleashes her cabaletta according to traditional plan. That's why I say this is the one scene that is written in a traditional structure, but not in a traditional manner. Here she goes. This is the cabaletta. Or tutti sorgete ministri. Mini 
infernale. Come up, rise all you infernal spirits. She is now prodding Macbeth to, to the man, in, in her own mind. This is in E major, which I said was the key that had to do with power and with the supernatural. So you've got the two, two basic keys, D flat and E major, not related to each other, uh, constructing the scene. So that is not, that's not conventional. Yusuf Coloratura. Okay, but it's not Rosina singing what a sweet girl she is until she's cross and then she becomes a devil. This is a devil from the beginning and, she's, and she shows us that. Okay, now we're going to pass to the scene. What Verdi said was the most, second most important scene of the opera is the duet between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth um, around the murder. It's going, to start, it's going to have a four-movement structure. It's going to have a very long introduction. That's not conventional. You're supposed to have a short introduction as the word, uh, but it's time for monologue, and it's a monologue is, is that a dagger I see before me? In other words, we, we get it because it must be there for the drama, not the other way around. Then we're going to have, between the Lady Macbeth and Macbeth, um, a fast movement, a slow movement, a bridge passage, and a fast movement. A little bit like a symphony in some ways, but also exactly like a scene, a shena. And so it's going to start now with this very soft music. The mutes are on all of the stringed instruments, and the instructions to Macbeth are not to sing with a full voice, but to whisper with his voce cupa, with his closed voice, hollow voice. <laughs> going to see the sword. Is that a sword I see before me? If you're not a ghost, let me grasp you. It's getting away, and yet I see it. And now he starts to reflect. Now the poetic uh, reflections of Shakespeare and of Macbeth. And then in he goes to the chamber. He refers to the horrible image of this. He hears the bell, he goes in, he murders Duncan, we don't see it. Lady Macbeth comes to the stage. Everything is quiet, everybody's asleep. Professor Smith referred to silence. What is that sound? It comes twice, let's do it again. Clearly something ominous. She says, what is that lament? Again. The owl is responding to its own lugubrious farewell. Now, uh, in Shakespeare, it's referred to as a shrieking owl. The owl is, of course, a death, is a, uh, the bird that brings death, but it's also the bird that spends the entire night with its eyes open and sees evil where other people do not see it. That interval, minor third, it's called bom, bom, will be, become more and more present in Verdi's operas as time so on. He will quote this in the Requiem some 30 years later. And to these two notes, in the last act, the chorus will sing, uh, they will announce the death of the queen in act four to these very two notes. Tutto è finito. Everything is finished. It is. Remember those two notes. Tutto è finito. That becomes a motive now. What does it mean? It basically means everything is finished. It doesn't mean the opera is over. You don't get to go home yet. But it means what's done has, cannot be undone in Shakespeare's words. And then together, using that motive becomes a part of the accompaniment 
you listen carefully to the second violins, it's buried in there. And he describes the scene to Lady Macbeth. He's terrified. That's the first movement. Here's the second movement. This is a, an andante. This is a slower. You hear this lamenting theme. This is derived from tutto e finito. And this is the um, reflections on Macbeth doth murder sleep, how Macbeth will never sleep again, basically. She responds by ridiculing him. What happened to the great, the great hero? Nobody would believe it if they could see him. And now we move on to the bridge passage, third movement. She says, give me the dagger. Excuse me. She says, take the dagger, go inside and smear blood on the two chamberlains, the two guards. Unlike Shakespeare, he does not go in. He says, I'm too afraid. She says, dammi il ferro, give it to me. And she goes in. Now that's already, once again, an upgrading of the proactive, if you will use a kind word for it, of Lady Macbeth. In other words, she doesn't do this in Shakespeare, but she does do it in Verdi. Dammi il ferro, and she takes it. And in she goes. And we're going to hear the knocking at the door now. On the list, Professor Smith's list of noises. Every sound frightens me. The witch's music. The ocean could not wash my hands. He says it. She will follow that theme in the fourth act. She says, here I am, you see, my hands are also full of blood. And so they sing their quote-unquote cabaletta, that fast movement. But instead of high notes and brilliance, it's all whispered. And so on. Now they go back, they go off to their room, and then Banquo and Macduff come in. Uh, no porter, the porter has been cut out of this. If you like the porter, though, Verdi brings him back in a very, a very strange form. If you like La Forza del Destino, there's a character called Fra Melitone. He's a grumbling monk who has to open the door to everybody in the monastery. Absolutely, that's a Shakespearean character, and I believe that his genesis is to be found in the porter's speech, which Verdi couldn't use on this occasion. That's it. And now Macduff discovers the, the body of King Duncan, and he says, orrore, 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 words you should know by now, horror, horror, horror. And here's Macduff. And I think you should recognize that voice. And here it is, a great tenor. Yes, that's our managing director and fearless leader, Placido Domingo, singing not Macbeth, but Macduff in his life as a tenor. Here he is. Listen to the orchestra bellowing out this rhythm. It is a typical Verdi rhythm of death. But because this opera is in Scotland, I have a feeling it was inspired by this. For you fans of Felix Mendelssohn, this is the Hebrides Overture. What's the link? Hebrides, it's Scotland. There are two pieces that are, have an uncanny resemblance to Mendelssohn's pieces about Scotland. There is a big excerpt at the end of the opera when the soldiers come in to the Scottish Symphony of Mendelssohn. Did I make it up? Yes. But it would be hard. I mean, I would be, it hasn't been proven, but it hasn't been disproven either. So there we go. So, and here we have the populace. This is your concertato of Act One because the entire castle is full. The population is out, shock and anger at the death, the murder of King Duncan. When I first conducted this opera, it was just exactly within a month, the 10th anniversary of the murder of John Kennedy. And it was, and I was in Washington, and I can assure you, it was, it reverberated with everybody when we, 
rehearsed, rehearsed that chorus. Uh, so there's something very real about that. Anger, shock at first, and sorrow, and then calls for vengeance. And so um, the chorus calls out to God in this uh, very uh, dramatic ending. Find the murderer and stamp him on his forehead the way you stamped the first murderer, who, of course, is Cain. I'm going to skip ahead here to the last act, the most important scene, the sleepwalking scene. You heard this in the prelude. Very similarly, you will hear this beautiful type of string writing very shortly after in La Traviata, in the last act when Violetta is dying. Okay. Sounds familiar? There it is. Atraviata, Act 4. Now, Maria Callas, this is the sleepwalking scene. You hear the lamenting owl. Una macchia. Out dance spot. Equi tutora via ti dico o maledetta. That's out dance spot. Out I say. Now, listen to the orchestra. It repeats itself. Over and over and over again, the same. What do you see? This obsessive washing of her hands. Genius on Verdi's part. Takes a, a conventional type of accompaniment figure and turns it into an image. Perfect. This is written in 1847. The first aria was written in 1847. He did not change one note of either one of them in 1865. In fact, you're going to have a lot of trouble even recognizing the divides unless you're, you know the opera very well. The entire first act is from 1847. Uh, the changes start slowly in 1865. Her, her aria has replaced a rather superficial cabaletta. And when the Pancos ghosts come in, still some changes. But then the big changes are act three. Back in Act 4, no change. No change in the sleepwalking scene. She relives the murder. She talks to Macbeth, who's not there, of course. A warrior so cowardly. Vergogna, shame. Okay, up, and let's hurry. And she sings. You hear the weeping now in the violins. Oime, that's Italian for oive. She admonishes, admonishes Macbeth to put on his clothes. Hurry, up, and then she says, Banco is spendo. Banco's dead. She's now reliving the murder of Banco. And he's in the grave. And her voice goes down when she says, Grave, Fossa. Who has died cannot rise. And then the vocal line goes up. Non sursian cor. The lamenting. And now the coup de grace. Sorry. Sorry. She's not going to finish with a cabaletta. She's going to finish on the highest note of the opera, a high D flat. And out she will go. This aria, Macduff's aria, and Macbeth's final aria are all in the key of D flat. And there she goes. Yeah. 
And you hear the tiptoeing music that you heard at the beginning of the prelude? she goes. So if you like Macbeth today, come back. You may not see it for another 28 years. <laughs> if you don't like it, come back because I want you to love it the way I love it. Thank you for coming out and enjoy yourself. <laughs>